0: Hi friends, my name is Kevin. Welcome to the VIA Media Podcast. Silicon Valley has a reputation for being the hub of technological innovation and world disruption. It may surprise some to learn that for many corporations, achieving that aim includes the cultivation of spirituality. In addition to meals, transportation, family and lifestyle services, such as childcare and laundry, these highly resourced technology giants provide mindfulness meditation, spiritual guidance counseling, social recreation, and ethical development, such as compassion and empathy. Things that were once considered the realm of religious institutions, such as churches and temples, and civic institutions, such as bowling leagues and local politics. Where identity was once a result of multiple aspects of life, for some in Silicon Valley, identity, meaning, and even purpose are all being found in one central place, work. But what happens when work replaces religion? Dr. Carolyn Chen is the author of Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. She explores this topic in depth and proposes that real harm is done to ourselves and society as a result of the corporate encroachment upon our lives. While her thesis is provocative and debated, her articulation of the phenomenon of what she calls techtopia, an engineered society where people find their highest fulfillment in work, is enlightening and deserves consideration. At the very least, this analysis provides for us a level of conscientiousness that could chart a better way forward for work, the importance of religious identity, the value of civic institutions, and a healthy and flourishing view of ourselves and our identities. In this conversation, we ask Carolyn about all of this and more, inviting her to interact with some critique and development in the workplace since the publication of her book. Here's my conversation with Dr. Carolyn Chen. Well, good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for another Via Media conversation. The first thing I want to do is thank our amazing partners. We have three of them this evening, Spark Church, Palo Alto, the Faith and Work Movement that is also based here in Silicon Valley, but has a global reach, and New College Berkeley over on the east side, you're actually going to be hearing from uh, them in just a few moments. But thank you, everybody, for this amazing uh, conversation on Carolyn Chen's book, Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. Um, My friend from New College Berkeley, Tim, would like to make an introduction. So Tim, why don't you say hello and some opening words from New College Berkeley.
1: Thank you, Kevin. Uh, you are the man. I, I'm sorry, that might be inappropriate, but you are the man. Thank you for putting all this together for us on behalf of um, on VIA Media. My uh, pleasure. I'm Tim Tsang, yeah, and I'm the co-director of uh, New College Berkeley. And on behalf of my other co-director, uh, Craig Wong and New College Berkeley, I'd like to thank you all for coming here for tonight's really important and exciting conversation um, with, with Carolyn, Dr. Carolyn Chen. Uh, we're, we're really delighted to co-sponsor this event with uh, Spark Church and uh, Faith and Work Journey and, and with uh, Via Media. Uh, I just want to say one word about New College Berkeley very quickly. That We really want to be a place where these types of conversations can be, uh, be, be uh, carried forward and discussed uh, because this is a very difficult time for people of faith in the midst of our polarized uh, society and, and, diff- and difficulties as the church tries to find its place. Uh, in this, in this uh, environment. So uh, look out for our spring offerings. We're, we're hoping that the, the, whatever we provide out there w- will be uh, helpful for in- encouraging thoughtful, uh, thoughtful um, people of faith to, to talk and, and to learn and to engage the, our, our society, our changing world with these uh, types of um, conversations. Uh, go to newcollegeberkeley.org. Uh, the announcements for the spring offerings will be made very soon. And tonight I also wanna congratulate you Dr. Carolyn Chen for recently um, being promoted to full professorship. And thank you so much for also serving on our advisory board at New College Berkeley. So with that, I'm I'm just gonna
0: sign off and watch from the YouTube channel. Okay, thanks so much, Tim. And congratulations, Carolyn, that's very exciting.
2: Thank you, thank you.
0: (laughs) First of all, thank you so much for accepting our invitation. We're absolutely delighted. Thank you for your work incredibly thoughtful, provocative, has sparked incredible conversation, um, even some critique. It's been a wonderfully engaging piece of work, um, and I'm excited to get into it. But my very first question for you, have you seen Severance? On <laughs> Apple TV Plus, I need to know for my own personal edification. Have you seen Severance, and can you, can you? Know, you
2: everyone talks to me about it, but I have not. Oh seen no! It. And this is yeah, and this is the thing. I I I'm, I'm, I I don't uh, consume very much pop culture, which is a disadvantage for me being a Berkeley professor. But but I know I I need I need to watch it
0: yeah okay well we will move so we,
2: on we, other people have been like you gotta you gotta watch it after
0: reading <laughs> the <book."> we, we <laughs> will move on to more important matters which is the content right. of your book um, so let's just start with a basic introduction and an overview of your general thesis so let's just start with the question what do you mean by work replacing religion
2: yeah so so you know the title of my book, "Work Pray, Code," when work replaces religion in Sil- Silicon Valley. My my book is a study of Silicon Valley. It's a case study of Silicon Valley, uh, but actually, the the my findings I argue are generalizable to other what I call knowledge industry hubs. So these these are places like Portland, Seattle. Uh, you know, Cambridge, Washington, DC, LA, New York, any place where you have a concentration of professionals. And what I'm arguing is that work is replacing religion in these places. What I mean by this is first, that professionals are looking for identity, meaning, belonging, uh, community, and purpose um, through the institution of work. And these are the kinds of things that Americans used to um, look for. They used to fulfill those needs through the institution of religion, and now they're doing it through the institution of work. The second thing, the second part of this equation is that companies are now using spiritual care and spiritual cultivation. Um, to make their workers more productive, uh, people told me in my research that spirituality is a competitive advantage. So we see this as companies are bringing meditation and mindfulness into their companies. They are bringing, uh, they will often bring um, spiritual or religious leaders to give inspirational talks. Um, it's very common for executives to have. Uh, executive coaching, where these executive coaches teach them spiritual practices. Um, in, if you look at Fortune 500 companies across the country, now almost all of them have uh, a mission, um, uh, practices, ethics. Uh, an origin myth, and even a charismatic founder. So these are many of the basic elements of religious organizations. And I mean, even the way that we often, that we talk about work now, we associate it with words like passion, love, joy, mission, vocation, calling. These are words that we used to use in the private sphere, um, in areas, in in institutions and organizations like the family or religion, uh, and not to describe work. And so this is a larger trend that I'm that I'm arguing is happening across the United States, but we see it in the most extreme case in Silicon Valley. And this maps onto this larger trend that we have seen in the last 50 years in the United States, where starting in the 1970s, we've seen the increase in the hours that professionals are devoting to work. And also... And a larger trend that we've seen for the last 50, 60 years in the United States, which is the decline in civic participation of which religion is one of those areas.
0: Yeah. Um, In many ways, what you've articulated is kind of the most recent iteration, because part of what you do in your work is to talk about the expansion of work. Like this has a long history of trying to become either more efficient or much more focused. And so uh, can you talk a little bit more about what that expansion of work has done and why it matters to this transition and, and shift that you're observing today?
2: Yeah, well, so what I talk about in my book is what I call the expansion of work and the decline or the contraction of religion. And what I mean by the expansion of work is essentially the expansion of work in people's lives not only taking more time energy and devotion than it has before right in the way that we often talk about work extracting from us but it's also expanding in our lives in that it's fulfilling many of the social spiritual needs that we used to rely on other or institutions so that now we are not only material materially dependent on work but also socially and spiritually dependent on work to meet our needs and so in this way i talk about so that we've often talked when we talk about work we often talk about it as being extractive that it's taking from us uh, that it is you know it, that it's soul numbing uh, you know um but what i argue instead in our in, in my book is that we've seen this shift in the last 45, 40 to fifty years, particularly when it comes to professional work, that work has actually become attractive. And that's part of this thing that we often don't really see. It's attractive because it's meeting more of our needs. It's giving us meaning. It's giving us purpose. It's giving us a community in life. Um, and here I just want to back up and say that this is not uh, this is this is not by coincidence, but rather this is a trend that we see in the last 50 years that maps onto larger social, economic and political changes in the United States. Um, the most important one being uh, these two major trends. One is the rise in global capitalism. So this, this increased competition uh, uh, um that American firms are experiencing. So this need to change its corporate culture. And then secondly, is the shift is the shift to a knowledge economy. Mm -hmm. And so that the way that we think about workers, the way that we even think about human capital, I mean, that is a fairly recent and new word in our vocabulary that we think of labor as capital that we think of an individual as a person as human capital that can be grown and developed and invested these are very different understandings of labor that we have that's emerged out of the last few years so that we actually see this change in company culture where they've where they are where companies have really invested in changing their company cultures to make work as a space for fulfillment so we've seen this in ways for instance where work cultures have changed, where workers, and I should back up and say that this is really only applying to professional and high-skilled workers. Mm. Uh, The companies have really invested in them. Um, They have given them more autonomy. They've changed structures so that they're more, so they're less hierarchical. Uh, There is profit sharing. There are stock options. You You get to choose your own title in many Silicon Valley places. Um, and they've also invested in your personal development that's a big thing right um, so that there's this this investment now so and and they've also thought about well how do we you know how how do we align the deepest part of a worker with the company and that is where spirituality has really played a very important role
0: you've articulated some of that shift I think most um poignantly through the changes in human resources in the HR department. Can you articulate what HR once was and how it shifted to what it currently is? What is that shift and what is it now, at least in some of your research and, and writing?
2: Yeah, so that shift. Um, one, uh, um, an older, uh, uh, someone who I interviewed who's retired but used to be a uh, the CEO of a very prominent tech firm that you would all recognize told me that back in the day, they referred to HR as human remains. So HR is, you know, so something is like the, the department that really uh, you want, that you, that everyone wanted to avoid. Right. And, and sort of like they don't bring very much value to the company. I think that that's been a big uh, sort of a chip on the shoulder of many of the people in HR that I interviewed. Well, the way that i heard people talking about hr uh, in my interviews was very different where i would ask tech workers they would about you know what their relationship was to hr like what they thought of hr and they would tell me things like oh well hr they're the ones who get you theater tickets they're the ones who arrange your meals they're the ones who get you know make sure that you have your bart pass etc they're the ones that are taking care of you Um, They would use words like, you know, taking care of, nurturing, Mm pampering. And one person, he uh, described to me that how the HR person in his firm, um, how in their cafeteria, uh, in their, I guess, their lunchroom, I should say, um, had put up this big poster Of Darth Vader that said, "Luke, eat your vegetables." Um, (laughs) So he explained to me, "Yeah, you know HR—they try to get you to eat your vegetables, and they even tell you to clean up up after yourselves in the kitchen." And then he said to me, "You know, they're kind of like mom." So I came up with this term, corporate maternalism, Mm -hmm. um, to really show that shift in that relationship, the role that HR plays. And when I would talk to people in HR, and I'd say, "Describe your job to me." they would say things like they use these maternal phrases like care, nurturing people's souls, you know, nourishing, uh, nourishing people, um, you know, taking care of them because they can't take care of themselves. So there was very much of this emphasis on this care of people's bodies, people's minds and people's spirits in order so that they could become more optimal workers It was with that in mind, because the biggest threat to the tech industry was burnout.
0: Yeah. I want to back up just a hair to maybe some of the historical trajectory of this. One of the um, questions that emerged from the book club that I was a part of and, and from some of the experiences, I mean, I'm right here in the heart of Silicon Valley. I got a bunch of Silicon Valley folk that very much relate to this. Um, But the long history and the trajectory is um, there's a question there. Reading your book, you would kind of conclude that work and kind of this push of capitalism that you mentioned is the causal force or at least a primary causal force Mm -hmm. of this replacement. Um, And then, of course, some people have suggested that some of your work is actually the next iteration of what Robert Putnam did through Bowling Alone, you know, uh, several decades ago. But then there's this question of is it really causal or is it just simply filling a gap that was already coming into existence by the decline of these civic institutions again vis-a-vis robert putnam's work that this was a trend that's been happening a long time ago and the reason sorry the reason why i feel like that is important is because there's a value there's there's almost an implicit value judgment that in this evaluation because I, I, when reading your book, I'm like, oh, my goodness. You could feel like these corporations are encroaching. Mm-hmm. But then there's this other potential interpretation where these corporations are simply filling a gap that was already there, that has been growing. And one of, I think, my uh, book club members just said, well, why not work? Why not allow this kind of integration to happen?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I'm not making a causal argument because I don't have the evidence of it. I think what I'm showing is that there's a technical term for sociologists, but there's a correlation here mm-hmm. um, that you that you know when we do look at professionals, uh, that they you know um, that that they that they tend to be spending more and more of their time at work and on on other and other things. Uh, and being less civically engaged, right? So I think that, so so this is not a causal argument, but I think that the point that you make is a really important one is like, are companies simply filling in a gap that's already there? And I think that this is in fact what many of the people that I interviewed uh, for, in HR were telling me themselves and and also the... Um, tech workers that I interviewed, where they said, "You know, community outside of a work outside of work is a challenge." They all said mm-hmm. this to me that there is an absence of community outside of work. And people that I interviewed, HR folks, people from within, also told me, "Look, you know, we're filling a gap. They actually don't have this, and we are. You know, what one person actually." Told me he he had started a mindfulness um, <clears throat> a mindfulness group and mindfulness at his company, and he was telling me about how one person had asked him, well, you know, is there anything like this? Um, you know, can I join something like this? Is there something like this outside? You know, where can I find more of this? And that guy said to him, well there's this thing called church, you know, religion, <laughs> you could, you could <laughs> do that. And the guy said, well, no, 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 but I, I don't want to do that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the conclusion from the person that I interviewed was like, see, look, we're feeling this deep spiritual need that's out there and we're doing it through mm-hmm. the company, you know? So, so yes, it's both and it's part of that. But I think that we also need to understand is that it, it's both that and it is also what I argue is this encroaching in the colonization of work. This is the expansion of work. And I think that we don't necessarily use that language of colonization or encroaching because we've accepted it as a given and we see the services that the company provides as a benefit. So for instance, you, your, your company provides you with lunch. Well, why would you say no if you can get a quote-unquote free lunch Mm -hmm. from your company?
0: Some of my best meals have been at Google, (laughs) Carolyn. Some of my best meals.
2: (laughs) That's exactly the same same thing that I concluded too. I was like, you know, I'm really busy and, you know, I would be doing, I would be a much better professor. I would be so much more productive. I would probably be on my third or fourth book by now (laughs) if I had all these things provided for me. So we don't necessarily see this as the colonization of the workplace over our lives. However, at the same time, we're building this dependency on it, you see? And what I saw was that workers, when their companies were providing them with these things, they were becoming not just materially, but socially and spiritually dependent Mm. on their companies and on work. And what happens when you do that? what happens when you become dependent on that way? way? Well, you want to spend more time. You want to give more, right? And so I want to just step back here and say that there isn't some like Wizard of Oz, some like puppet master who's like kind of orchestrating this whole thing. Each of these different people have different kind of needs and different and they're using and they're working in the system in a different way. Yeah. Many of the people in HR and the meditation and mindfulness teachers, they are very spiritual people who really wanted to make work a, a more meaningful environment, a more pleasant environment. The meditation teachers, they felt like this was a spiritual good that they were providing for their workers. Workers themselves felt like if I'm not going to be eating this, I'm going to be either not eating or eating McDonald's. I might as well be getting a healthy meal, right? Right, right? So every single person was getting some kind of benefit out of it. But here's where I wanna step back and say, it's because of the particular ecosystem that they live in. You know, It's in this particular ecosystem, this is how you need to make sense of your life. This is how you need to make meaning out of your life because essentially the workplace is monopolized So many of the social, spiritual and material wards of a community.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think um, I'm definitely going to want to get to some of the implications because, I mean, you write pretty, if I can say, prophetically about what is happening to religious and civic institutions. You also Mm -hmm. Talk extensively about the racial component, specifically with Asian religions and some of those particular components, mm-hmm. and then what happens to all those institutions and the ethics and the morals that come with it. That I think are incredibly provocative and and, th- um, and thought provoking. Um, but before we do that, one of the iterations and Roy, I want to I want to come to you. One of the iterations here is a much more Uh, integrated approach. And our friend, my my good friend, Roy Tinklenberg of the uh, Faith and Work Movement is here. And he would like to ask you some questions regarding um, workplace ministries.
3: It's great to be with you, Kevin and Carolyn. Um, Good to see you both. Yeah, I think one of the big things that we seek to do in our ministry, Faith and Work Movement Global, and we work with a lot of Christian and um, faith-based ERG groups and workplace fellowships, very similar to a campus ministry model at the university, like you would be familiar with at UC Berkeley, um, but at a corporate campus, instead of being student-led groups, they are employee-led groups. And we seek to make sure that people are integrating their faith in their work. Um, But what I see when I read your book and when I hear you speak is that you're saying that a lot of the people who are best retaining their faith and their um civic life are living somewhat disintegrated lives it's like they're going to work they're getting their work done they're setting boundaries on this all-encompassing or encroaching colonizing aspect of work and then checking out and living their life in other places where their church communities or their synagogues or the civic organizations that they are part of and so you're looking at that as being maybe a more successful way of um, retaining their faith instead of losing their faith um, to this religion of techtopia Um, and i was wondering whether or not this campus ministry model might add some value for people where they can integrate their faith they can find people of the same faith who are in the workplace find the support that they need to encourage one another in their faith and to, to really live integrated lives um, mm-hmm. instead of exacerbating this sacred and secular divide that forces us to leave, live disintegrated lives.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's a great question, Roy. And I know we've talked about this um, um, as well. And um, so I, I first want to just preface and say that I did not study the faith and work movement, um, and most of the people that I studied actually were not religious. So rather than being religious people, uh, I actually had to um, uh, over—I had to actively search out people of, of faith for my study in Silicon Valley, which kind of shows that religious folks are actually a minority in the tech workplace. Um, But I wanna go back to to those who have not read my book just a little bit more to explain a bit more about my findings. So what I argue in my book is that, um, that work has replaced religion and that many people Worship work. Um, And they what I mean by that is that they sacrifice, they submit, and they surrender to their work. And in my study, I found two groups of people who resisted work worship. These two groups of people were older workers. Um, This is like late Gen X um, and older. and religious people of all ages. So these could also be millennials. And what do these two groups share in common? What these two groups share in common is that they are actively involved in organizations outside of the workplace. So that might be, and for religious people, this was often their faith communities. Uh, For older people who were not religious, these were various kinds of civic organizations outside of the workplace. And these kinds of people were had a very different kind of life than the typical tech worker. And what I argue is that they actually led less integrated lives in the workplace so that they could be more integrated in their communities and their faith communities outside of work. So they also had very different kinds of work habits as well for these folks. Their closest friends were not in the workplace, whereas most tech workers, their closest friends were in the workplace in the same companies. Um, these workers, the people who didn't worship work, and I'll just now just talk about religious workers. They um, they tended not to socialize as much in the workplace, so they weren't joining social clubs. Um, and they were also very, very uh, careful about rationing their time. It was very clear they were rationing where they saw... Like I don't want to spend, I want to spend as little time as I can at work to get everything done so that I can leave work. And there was also this sense of rationing their energy as well. So there's this thing with work, which I'm sure anyone who works in a corporation has heard the invitation to bring your whole self to work, Mm -hmm. right? Bring your whole self to work. Well, what happens when you bring your whole self to work? Well, you give your whole self to work, essentially. That, that's what the whole point there is, is that when you become, again, socially, spiritually, even physically dependent on your company, you also give more to it because you rely on it more. And so what was the difference with the religious workers who were less integrated in the workplace? Well, they had a community. They had a mission. They had an identity. They had a sense of meaning outside of the workplace that really defined them, that claimed them, that competed for their time, energy, and devotion. And this was very different from the folks from other, from the, the typical tech worker. Now, Roy, I didn't interview very many people actually who were involved in you know ERGs in the company. And when I asked people why they told me that, they felt like they didn't have time to belong to a faith community outside of work and also inside of work. So they had to make a choice between the two. So there was very much of this feeling of this tension between, you know, if I want to have this life outside of work, it has to take from my work in some way, you know? And so, so that's what I was seeing is that people said they simply didn't have time to do, they did. They simply didn't have time to do both. Now, does that mean that a person who is not joining a Bible study, say at work, is not living an integrated life? Not necessarily. So here's where we might think about integration differently, that we might have different spheres. And here is where I am, um, let me back up here and say, say that I think that for the people I interviewed who were involved in faith groups in the workplace uh, those people did find it rewarding because they felt like there was um, they often felt most uh, people of faith they described themselves as being in the closet essentially no one else knew that they were people of faith and they felt often stigmatized and marginalized especially in the tech workplace and so this great brought them great comfort to know that there was a community that they could share you know with people in the workplace so I think that um, so I think that that is so that I think that it does certainly it provides value in that way Um, I think that what my concern here though and this is where I largely saw this with you know uh, Buddhists who were providing meditation mindfulness often through like HR was that what happens when you bring faith and integrate it into the company is that essentially the company it up, colonizes it. <laughs> and so it sets the terms for which you can practice. So that might be who's the composition in your faith group. Like who are the people who actually have time to go to these fellowships or it could be, you know. So 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 the, that, that's that's part of the issue. Or you know, at least with the with the Buddhists that I interviewed, it was often like, okay, I have to justify, legitimate these practices basically as contributing to productivity. Mm-hmm. And so here's my concern: is that when you bring, um, and. and you know, and again, the meditation mindfulness uh, teachers really struggled with is is how do you bring your faith to work? How do you bring these practices to work, but not let work own you? Mm. That that was the big issue mm-hmm. here, and I think that that's a I think that's a really big that's a really big question, and this is where if you can have the institutional autonomy and separation, this is when you know if. To me, I feel like if we want our faith, we want the ethic, our the ethics of our faith traditions to have an influence of, in work, we need to have a strong institutional, strong institutional autonomy and independence mm-hmm. from companies and from their needs and their mission. Because- yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Because they essentially are colonizing all of our, they're 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 colonizing our world, especially. In this, in Silicon Valley, so how yeah. do we? So that's the question for me. Yeah.
3: I agree that there is this aspect of work colonizing various aspects of everybody's lives, and um, I think that the antidote to worshiping work is worshiping something else. And you mentioned that yourself. And I think when you're in the company and you're surrounded by others in the company who are worshiping something else, that provides you this strength as you say to to um not get swallowed up in this aspect of work becoming all-encompassing um but you can still do excellent work you can bring your full self to work you can see your work as a form of worship and all of these things and and not get um swallowed up by corporate maternalism or the. What you refer to as like the cult of TikTokia, um, and that's that's something that I would um, I've been trying to encourage people to do, and I'd love to learn more from you on how um, you see these paths intersecting in good ways and maybe not so good ways. Yeah.
2: Thanks, thanks, Roy.
0: Thanks so much, Roy. Yeah. Um, Caroline, I'd like to kind of push the idea of colonialism and really extrapolate what this actually means you talk extensively about buddhism being one i mean a prime example of this um you mention i think it's on page 195 here a buddhism that is at home in the tech company is an ethically hollow buddhism one that must practice detachment from its own ethical teachings and turn its mind's eye away from the karmic consequences of the tech industry extreme inequality employment insecurity and a crisis uh, crisis in housing To name just a few. I think talking about how work colonizes faith or religion is um, a nice technical way of talking about it, but what you're actually advancing and promoting, and even what Roy is attempting to do through his integrative work, is to say, wait a second, there are some elements and aspects of these spiritualities that if they don't have at least some sort of civic or religious autonomy and they are only applied you know to a work um environment and context then you're actually going to take away the very elements of that and you even talk about whitening buddhism the racial component of it stripping all the asian aspects of it which in many ways you know turns it into you know an engineering problem let's take the the bits that we need to make the company function and throw away the bits that we uh that we don't need. Is that a fair uh, evaluation of your critique of this colonizing of religion?
2: Yes, that is that is a fair critique. You know, so what I argue, um, so I, I interviewed people of different generations. And what I talk about is how, um, so I compare this sort of current generation of tech workers to an earlier set of migrants. So let me back up here, actually. And what I say is that um, in Silicon Valley, very few people are actually from Silicon Valley, right? They Most people are coming from somewhere else. So I call them tech migrants. They're people who, they're essentially migrants who come from somewhere else and they're looking and they settle down in Silicon Valley and they're searching for community.
0: You, uh, no. Sorry to interrupt. You also talk about the, that kind of migration being of a particular demographic, uh, fundamentally male, young, yes. and predominantly white.
2: Did I read you Correct. correctly? Right. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Which is just, you know, essentially the demographic of the tech workplace. Right. Well, in the United States, we've had many histories of migration and people coming from different countries to the United States. And the actual what we see among migrants to the United States, one of the patterns that we often see is that the ways that they create community, one of the first things they do, the ways that they create community and belonging identity is through faith communities. So they establish this through their faith communities. So if we look at migrants to the Bay Area in the 60s and 70s, these are folks, these are young folks coming for the counterculture, right? And they're coming to like live in hate ashbury They're coming to... like. You know, per, to really expand their consciousness, learn Zen Buddhism, meditation, etc. They also were migrants, uh, just like these migrants, uh, you know, of today. And they also created communities, and they did this through creating, for instance, the San Francisco Zen Center, mm-hmm. their communes, right? But today's tech migrants, they're creating that community and that identity and belonging through the faith community of the tech workplace. So we see here kind of this shift in what is the sort of locus, the anchor of sociality in our society now. And it used to be faith communities, other civic organizations, and now it's these companies. Now it's economic enterprise. Now, let me get back to your question about like how does this essentially, you know, what is happening to, um, um, how this is affecting religious experience Well, I talk about this earlier generation of countercultural folks and the way that they approached meditation as mystics. They essentially saw they were on a spiritual quest. Meditation was a a spiritual practice to transform themselves and to transform their consciousness. And they did it through these spiritual communities. They had teachers who taught them. Well, the way that tech workers today and professionals approach meditation is very different. Essentially I call them users as in users of a religious app and the app here is meditation or the tool. So essentially spiritual practices and religious practices are essentially these tools that people can use to optimize themselves, to make their work, to make themselves more productive, to make them more efficient, to make them more happy, you name it. So it's sort of like a menu of choices that you have, right? Now, if we compare and contrast these two different approaches to spirituality and religion, in one case, in the case of the mystics, and these are the folks from the 60s and 70s, they submitted themselves to a practice in order to be transformed. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the case of the users, there's no transformation here they are in charge and they're using, they're picking up this particular practice here so that it can be a tool so that they can transform themselves so that they can be more productive. Mm. So here in this case, the religion or the God or what they're worshiping is the cult of productivity is work. Um, So this is a very, very different kind of relationship that one would have towards spiritual practice and towards religion. One is a very instrumental approach and one is approach where one could experience surrender and awe and transformation in a different way, right? Um, Now, am I getting, sorry, am I getting to your question? I think
0: what, I'm gonna push you a little bit further. I think one of the images that comes to mind that I remember so vividly from your work as you're talking now, is there is this spiritual practice called the labyrinth that people walk. It's very, uh, you know, it's a wonderful meditative practice. It weaves in and out. It's a single path in and a single path out. There's all sorts of spiritual meaning and teaching around it. And at one particular point in your book, you say, but what is at the center of the labyrinth in Tectopia? The corporate logo. And I just felt like that was just, that was kind of a sucker punch a little bit, Carolyn. It's like, holy cow, you're taking all of these really powerful meaningful um, and vi- uh, long heritage uh, practices that people have been doing for you know thousands of years and you're really kind of giving it to Silicon Valley and say you know how uh, if 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 I if I may, almost a how dare you put the corporate logo in the middle of the yeah. labyrinth, which was supposed to be a really powerful meaning spiritual journey to finding oneself and connecting with the divine or with others and, and these kinds mm-hmm. of things, and now we're turning that very process that has been powerfully meaningful for thousands of years into a tool a human resource that can be leveraged for greater productivity and i guess my question to push it the next step is yes all of what you are saying but what happens and you even actually make the argument that democracy is harmed as a result of this the willingness to actually engage in civic institutions the willingness to engage with morality and ethics um fundamental virtues that come with these spiritualities are being stripped away. I, and, and that's really my question. How much of that is actually happening? How certain can we be? And uh, and then I need to follow up with the other question, which is, is you know, what is the counterfactual? Mm-hmm. If you if somehow the divine gave you all magic genie powers, to tell Silicon Valley what to do, what would you do? Sorry, I asked you like four questions and all that because it's all jumbled in my head, but that's kind of where my brain is going with all of this. No,
2: good. No, no, no. Fine. I'm good with four questions. Okay. Let me back up here and let us let me talk about Techtopia just so that we get a sense yeah. of like where I'm coming from and then and then I might lose my train of thought and then you just got, remind me. again. We'll do it. We'll go. do it together. <laughs> Okay. So, so in my book, I, I I talk about this concept of techtopia. So techtopia is, um, is an engineered society where human where work becomes the highest source of fulfillment. And, and this is describing Silicon Valley, essentially. Um, and in techtopia what happens is that the workplace is like this giant magnet that essentially attracts all the time and energy and devotion of the community um such that you have these other social institutions this is the family these are your faith your faith communities this is your rotary club arts institutions etc etc that these other magnets which have grown small and weak in comparison and basically in order to get a share of the time and energy of the community, okay, they have to service the they have to service the tech workplace, and so I saw this uh, in my research where um, where essentially the workplace again we need to shift the way that we think and talk about work from work as being extractive to. The reality of what I was witnessing is that work is attractive work is very fulfilling people are giving all their time and energy to work and work is. Fulfilling so many of their needs through corporate maternalism that essentially it's creating a bubble, so they that 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 insulates them from the public, so they don't need to engage. With the public anymore, so this is what I was seeing, um, and this is what public officials were telling me, community leaders, of, you know, faith leaders were telling me that essentially, well, tech workers they are very politically apathetic because mm. a they don't need to rely on public resources as much because their companies, with their perks, provide them with anything, with everything, but also because they're working so hard that they don't really have time to care about these other mm. things. You know, so this is what I was hearing time and time again from everyone else. Now, what happens in a larger community? And sorry, let me just go back to Techtopia right here. Okay, with this magnet imagery, right? So say if you, so you have this magnet and if you say like, you know, you put this, pour this bucket of metal fillings, filings onto a table well all in the, the and these metal pieces represent the time and energy and devotion of the community well they're all going to be attracted to the largest magnet which is the workplace and that all the other institutions essentially in order to get a share of the community time energy and devotion they have to service the workplace and this is what i saw in silicon valley so that for instance i taught, i interviewed one buddhist priest and he told me that you know um people are so busy working that they don't have time to come to the morning sitting anymore so he had this idea well if they're not coming to the morning sitting anymore why don't i bring meditation to work Mm. and this is what he did but in order to bring meditation to the workplace well he had to change the teachings dramatically he had to take out the ethical teachings because and he had to essentially frame and shape meditation so that it would meet the needs and the goals of the workplace. And he told me, you know, they're not. H.R. is not going to let me come in because they don't because they want me to provide ethical teachings. They want me there to make the workers more productive. So he has to frame meditation as a practice that makes workers more productive right so essentially this is what we're seeing you know among uh, religious with with religious leaders and we we're seeing this with families as well and we have a very developed discourse about work you know about work versus family right particularly when it comes to women and kind of the competing demands of this but one of the things that i witnessed there is that instead of going home for work sorry home for dinner what I witnessed in some companies is that some families were coming to work for dinner because free food. because yeah, <laughs> the company was providing dinner, was providing free food, but they also had to accommodate to the schedule mm-hmm. of the workplace, you know? And so this is this way that we're, where we're seeing that these other, you know, so many other institutions had to find a way what I call getting Google money, essentially with the cost of living rising in the Bay Area, people like meditation teachers, places like schools, they couldn't exist, they couldn't survive anymore unless they found a way to be useful Mm. to the tech company. Mm -hmm. And this is the way that we see work colonizing, you know, all these other institutions. Um, And so what happens is when we think about techtopia, we have to think about this larger ecosystem. A larger ecosystem where essentially the social, material, and spiritual rewards of a community are concentrated in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And so that all the other institutions are going to be looking to meet the needs of the workplace. Okay, now, Kevin, I totally forgot, like, what was your one of your question, two, uh, three, and four, so I'll, I'll jump to
0: the last question. And then Sammy, if you want to grab some of those Slido questions and throw them in, we'll I'll get to the question. We got a lot of uh, activity on the Slido. Thank you, everybody for participating. My question for you dr carolyn chan is the genie gives you all magic powers what is what is the counterfactual because some of what i heard from some of my my folks here is like but is this really so bad and a little bit to um i think roy's question as well about having an integrated life and and making it all work like what is the other option here what
2: is the other option right so so listen okay so just a couple of things here i would you know, let's use as an example in comparison a different time in American history. And let me bring you back to the 1950s. This is around the time of the rise of this large American corporations and, you know, the rise of white collar work in the United States. Well, guess what? The typical white collar worker is working from nine to five. Mm-hmm. First of all, his work is, and they were usually men their work was contained within a certain you know 8 hours but this but the typical white collar worker also had a very active life outside of the workplace this is a time in the 1950s of the height of civic participation in the united states so this person built it wasn't like work contained all of life rather work contained work and the typical white collar worker built a life identity, meaning, and belonging for himself outside, in his faith community, in his softball league, in his bowling league, in his Rotary club, in his neighborhood association, et cetera, et cetera. This is when you talk about what is the other counterfactual. What I'm concerned about here is that, and this is you know, religious leaders, uh, families, all kinds of, you know, everyone who basically lives in a techtopian ecosystem as we is that we've accessed, uh, accepted this system as a given. Mm-hmm. And that basically we need to find, we need to figure out how we can make life work in it. How can we make, you know, we would not be having this question about how do we, you know, how do we, how do we create a Bible study in the workplace? if work were from nine to five mm. and we had time to have a, a fulfilling spiritual life and spirit, fulfilling spiritual community outside of work, we wouldn't even have to entertain that, right? But we've simply taken it for granted. So when you ask me, you know, what, I mean, I would love for faith leaders, community leaders, politicians, folks to be asking, well, hold on, let's not take this for granted. It, you know, give them that genie. Mm. Like we we could build this all over again. What would we, what would we build? Are we simply accommodating to this techtopia? You know, and here, let me just say something that it's provocative. I don't know if it's true, but I'm just going to put it out there. You know, um, we often talk about work as being a, No, we don't often, but some of us talk about work as being a source of idolatry. Mm. We're supposed to be worshiping God, but we're worshiping work instead. But when we really look at the situation in a place like Tectopia, what's the real golden calf here? Mm. What is the real idol? And I'm just going to put out there to be provocative that maybe the real golden calf that we're worshiping is our religion. Hmm. is our faith that what we're really worshiping in other words is work but we're using our faith as that image as this thing that's making us help worship work even more
0: Hmm. I'm gonna have to chew on that one for a little while doctor that's pretty um yeah that is pretty Interesting. And there's lots of potential nuances to that. uh, that Yeah, I I mean, let me
2: just put, you know, because this question is like, I think that one of the questions that many Christians ask who are professionals is, you know how do i use my work to serve god but again this question is one that we might not have need to be have been asking 50 years ago 100 years ago it's because of this particular historical moment that we live in in these circumstances in which everyone around us is talking about how work must be meaningful mm-hmm. about this is just a given that we must be passionate about our work this is in fact the these are in fact the the signs that one is a person of privilege that you get to have meaningful work that you get to be passionate
0: about your work. Uh, All right. So this conversation just took a turn for another hour. I need another hour of your time. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to do so. Thank you so much. We've got a a load of questions. So this is going to be a little bit rapid fire and I hope you're able to uh, listen quickly. Um, Our first one's from the book club. What else would you have, uh, what else would you have included in your book if you had written it um, after observing the rise of work from home culture in the post pandemic world?
2: Um, I think um, that's a that's a that's a really great question because you know what I talk about in my book is essentially um, how uh, how life has become a part of work. Mm. You know, essentially has, how the, how the boundaries between work and life are, are, have been completely obliterated, right? And that that work has swallowed life. But I think that now in this right in the post pandemic world, I mean literally you know home and work are like now there's really no separation at all right um and so so that's a that's an interesting thing to think about i think you know what some of the things let me tell you just you know what's on my mind when i think about um uh, work culture in the post pandemic world i mean what i've been observing is that a lot of people are getting more burnt out from work um, and I think part of that is, well, yes, the hours are more because you could start work at like 7.30 in the morning now because you don't have to commute, there could be meetings. But I think that the other thing is that work has become more remote in the sense that the social and and spiritual benefits of work have become more remote mm-hmm. as you're working from home. And so I think that I, you know, what I, what I find really interesting here is that you know people talk about things like the great resignation about quiet quitting and this sort of thing and yet the narrative about needing work to be meaningful and needing to be passionate about work hasn't changed at all in fact what i've been hearing is instead like you know i want to change my work to find more meaningful work Work. so that has actually stayed That's the the very basic assumption that's part of work worship is actually it's incredibly resilient and 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 resistant to to the pandemic. And and that's still what people are looking for in work, I find.
0: Hmm. Yeah. All right. Put on your uh, consultation hat in an enlightened society. How does a good corporation provide employee benefits? Are there certain perks that a company simply shouldn't provide?
2: Yes, I I think there are certain benefits that a company certainly shouldn't provide. Um, I think that, you know, what I saw was that companies were providing more and more for their employees, um, and um, when I often felt like, why don't you just give the employees time? Like, why don't you give them time off to have a decent lunch break and to go out? And really get away from work and just take a break. Um, why don't you, you know, um, uh, wh- why don't you give them time instead of organizing uh, volunteer activities? Why don't you just give them time to go out and find these volunteer activities that they want to join instead? Mm-hmm. So I do think that there are certain perks that a combination should, simply shouldn't provide. Um, I think that a lot of like the food perks uh sorry i mean i know that it's super convenient here i mean believe me i wish i had those too but it actually comes at a cost to the local community and small business owners you know i would talk Mm. to restaurateurs who are just like i can't make it work here in Mm. silicon valley because i have to compete against these tech companies and their, their cafeterias. Like I can't, you know, I can't make, and and I would interview people and they would say like, Oh, you know, my chiropractor, well, my chiropractor now works for LinkedIn, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's a way. So, so, so yes, I think, um, but here does a good, what are some employee benefits that a good company should provide? I think how about a good pension? Mm -hmm. How about some job security? Uh, how about health benefits? stable hours, unemployment, um, the things that, you know, in a way that companies, um, I've just right now been talking about professional high-skilled workers, but really this is a minority of workers in the United States. Yeah. The large majority of workers actually, you know, work has become even worse for them. Work is not fulfilling.
0: Yeah.
2: Work has become even more unstable. Less meaningful, less dignified, less secure—all of these things. And when we talk about, let me just you know go off on my <laughs> spiel here, but when we talk about faith and work, I think that we should be concerned about as people of faith, like the working conditions of you know of, of people who have te- yeah. of most Americans who have very terrible working conditions and who have very few employee benefits at all. Yeah. Um, And so being able to say, like, hey, I know what my schedule is going to be next week so that I could take care of my family, Um, you know, having a stable salary, all of these things, uh, I think that companies should should start thinking about providing.
0: Yeah, I I was reminded when you were talking of a friend who read your book, loved it, works at Google, and she said, I made breakfast the other morning. And it was the most profoundly meaningful experience of the last however many years she's been working at Google. And she did her laundry and it was uh, it was kind of an incredible awakening for her of how much this whole phenomena has taken over
2: uh, her life. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to I think that when we what tech companies have done in a way is that they've been outsourcing sort of the care things, caring for ourselves, caring for our communities. And there's something very profound about being able to participate in those things, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, we just got a couple more. Uh, want to respect your time and everyone else's time. What problems would arise if Christianity was being co-opted for corporate needs the way Buddhism was?
2: Well... Um, gosh that's a (laughs) that question (laughs) let me talk you know maybe i can answer the question in a in a in a different way and talk about what one meditation um a a buddhist um um meditation teacher told me and he told me he was really aware that he was being brought in to be a productivity guru and not to teach ethics And, and and you know and he was just kind of talking about mindfulness and he said you know we would really be providing, we would really be teaching the Dharma. We would really be setting the, providing the convi- conditions for a more mindful world if we could reduce the salaries between the CEO and the lowest paid mm. person in the tech company. But no one is, no one's hiring me to talk about that. You know, and so I think that, um, you know, I, I, I think that here, what faith what faith traditions, what religions can provide for secular organizations. I, I think the one of the most important things that they can provide is a vision and a tradition of justice and of ethics because, mm. because companies don't have that. And this is one of the things that faith communities of all traditions can provide for secular organizations where profit is the bottom line. Mm. And I think that this is and, and Buddhism has essentially lost uh, in these companies that ethical voice has been lost and has been wiped out and I think that that could also happen to any religion including Christianity.
0: It's uh, very much connected to your provocative um, observation or, or provocation or or statement that if we begin to worship our religion what what ethics or values or virtues mm-hmm. get lost? in that particular idolization, um, as well. Uh, we'll throw this last one up, um, as I think, um, a statement and as kind of an exhortation, I read the book, lots about devotion of Silicon Valley tech workers to their jobs, but how devastated are they if they get terminated? That part was missing.
2: Yeah, that's a great, great point. And that's a point that many people have brought up to me again and have shared to me that experience about exactly how devastating it is and of course you know we talk about this and right now when you know half of twitter workers have, <laughs> have lost their jobs right oh, and if
0: you said the word twitter this isn't yeah oh boy <laughs>
2: right? and move their lives to their jobs and i think and, and i and i said and i think that you're uh, this person's comment is absolutely right because you know here's the thing is that you're faith community of work versus your a faith community that's based on, you know, a real faith community, your religious tradition. I mean, a, a company, you're basically, it isn't a community. It isn't your family because you're there only as long as you're valuable,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: only as you can contribute, as long as you can contribute to the bottom line. But these words like passion, love, joy, calling, vocation, completely obscure that relationship it completely obscures that relationship and here you know kevin i'm gonna just bring in marx here (laughs) But, but i think that that's what marx is trying to one of the points that he makes is that essentially there is this oppositional relationship between the workplace and the worker where the workplace is the company is trying to get as much out of the worker as possible we call this exploitation, right? Yeah. But essentially, the way that Silicon Valley companies' cultures are have been cultivated and created is to completely obscure that kind of that kind of tension and that 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 that, 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 that these two parties might have opposing interests. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and the thing is, is that tech workers forget that because they are in that particular ecosystem, because they are in these work cultures. And so they're absolutely devastated when they get terminated. Absolutely, because you've forgotten that. But what if you remember that from the very beginning? If you did, you'd be like, I knew this was coming. It was just a matter of time. You know, as long as as soon as, you know, as soon as, you know, as soon as my skills are no longer needed, I'm going to be terminated As, as soon as, you know, as soon as I'm not you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. so I, th- I think that, that that you're absolutely right.
0: I want to um, thank once again, thank you, Roy, um, for participating and contributing. Thank you, Tim, for your introduction and partnership. Thank you, Spark, and uh, just wanted to throw up all the websites of all of our partners for their uh, contribution and partnership in the event. Thank you, everybody, who um, joined us online and for submitting all of your questions. Or sorry, we couldn't get to all of them. The book is Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley by Dr. Carolyn Chen. And I just want to close by saying thank you so much for your, the provocations and the the study and the research. And in many ways, what we're all um, attempting to do and trying to navigate this chaotic world of ours is trying to shine light on the areas that are sometimes hidden from our eyes. And I think I, my, my own personal experience with some of this stuff has been I I would not have thought to see things in the way that you have articulated them um, because they are so subtly encroaching upon our lives. And for all of us, um, what seems to be at the base of this is the pursuit of meaning, purpose, belonging, and letting those virtues and values really shape our identity and our connection with the world. And um, while there's still, I think, plenty of controversy and critique to be had regarding some of the work that you've you've advanced, I think your ability to articulate these ideas and provoke us into thinking much more critically about this engagement has been a phenomenal gift. Um, you are uh, very kind and generous with your time. Uh, and I thank you so much for spending this time and sharing your work with us. This is, um, well, I'll just throw it up here. Debbie says, this was uh, her favorite book club from spark so far it was an incredible conversation time that we had and i'm so appreciative carolyn thank you so much and we will make sure that we let you go and uh, so appreciate you and your time
2: thank you kevin thank you everyone
0: bye all right right, friends have a good night everybody and uh, join us next week for mike martin um, from raw tools as we talk about violence Um, have a good night everybody thanks